0: Welcome to the Scholarly Kitchen Podcast for July 10th, 2013. I'm Stuart Wills from Science Magazine, and today we're talking about bibliometrics. We seem to be awash in data these days, and that has created a raft of new opportunities and measures for assessing the impact of a piece of scholarly work, some of which we talked about in our last show on altmetrics. But what's it like to do bibliometric research in this age of abundance? Scholarly kitchen chef Phil Davis is a consultant specializing in statistical analysis of readership and citation data. He joins me today by phone to talk about the modern state of bibliometrics and where it's headed. Phil, thanks for dropping in.
1: And thank you for having me, Stuart.
0: Well, last week on this show, we had Jason Pream talking about alt metrics, uh, the use of social media activity, uh, press activity, bookmarking, and other sort of alternative measurements of a research product 's influence. Uh, it got me thinking that for bibliometrics as a science, uh, we're we're kind of in a best-of-times, worst-of-times situation, that um, in some sense there's a superabundance of data to work with and, and potential problems to solve and avenues to explore. It must be difficult figuring out what the important problems are. Um, so I'm curious how someone in your line of work kind of deals with that both practically and, and philosophically, for lack of a better uh, word.
1: From a practical sense, I found it necessary to purchase a new computer with a ton of memory for doing (laughs) statistical analysis. Um, You know, just 10 years ago, getting a few thousand records was a a real thrill. Today, some of the data sets I work with exceed millions of observations. Mm. Um, However, from a philosophical sense, traditional statistics often assume that you were working from a small sample of the entire population, the entire population being something that was just out of your reach because gathering the data was expensive and time-consuming, and so elaborate statistical tests were developed to make inferences from that small sample to the rest of the population. So now, at least for some types of web data, gathering the data is the easy part, and it's possible in some cases to capture data on the entire population. And when you have data on the entire population, you don't have to make that inferential leap from your sample. With large data sets, you can also detect small effects and interactions that you wouldn't be able to detect in a sample. But honestly, the more that I work with statistics, Stuart, the more deeply I've come to think of what the data can tell us, what it can't tell us about our world. Um, Beneath the details and the techniques of the statistics themselves are some really profound ideas. So before tackling a new project, I spent a lot of time staring at the ceiling, pondering whether the data can really answer the question that we're after.
0: Well, even beyond what you're talking about, there's also the sort of question of where the data end. Uh, <laughs> you know, even in the realm of citation data, you've now got things like counts on Google Scholar, et cetera, that, that people are actually using and taking seriously, but that seem to to complicate how you do any sort of analysis.
1: Yeah, there are a lot of metrics available now, so specifically Google Scholar Metrics is a great free service, and I encourage you, great researchers to use it, especially if they don't have access to uh, the Web of Science or Scopus or other, other services. But for metrics to have real value, they really have to satisfy a, a number of conditions, like uh, is the underlying data transparent? Can you trace it down and know that it wasn't made up? A lot of the commercial services that generate these data require you to purchase it or license it. Um, access to it. The metric also needs to have some external validity, meaning that it really has a theoretical connection to what you're trying to measure, like quality or scholarly impact. And it's not always clear what some of the available metrics are measuring. The metrics need to be reliable, meaning that if you query them several times, you get the same or similar results. And um, Another thing I've been thinking about is that if a metric is based on some calculation, it needs to be easy enough to replicate. While I love the idea of eigen-based metrics, they're based on a really computationally intensive algorithm and require you to have access to the entire data set, not Mm -hmm. just citations to your your own journal. Um, While I have reservations about the journal impact factor, it is pretty simple and intuitive to measure. You know, lastly, there has to be systems in place in these metric systems if you're going to take them seriously to discourage gaming and Mm. what i mean by systems i mean both structural and human Um, this means that it it should be hard to distort the metric and and consequences for attempting to do so collecting the data is not too difficult but building authority into the system is really the expensive part because you need humans to judge allegations of misconduct and take actions that have real consequences For example, um, Thomson Reuters delist journals from receiving an impact factor because the citation patterns to that journal really represent uh, an intention to distort the ranking of the journal. And this is no small deal for Thomson Reuters, but they need to do it if the research community is going to take citation metrics seriously. Back to Google Scholar and Google Scholar metrics. I covered a paper last year where some authors uh, created some, Fake papers with hundreds of self citations. They post them on their own website. And within a short period of time, Google Scholar boosted their research impact scores. Um, there are a lot of great free services for scholars offered by Google and other companies um, who are now in the business of, pro- of providing metrics. But unless these companies invest in building authority and accountability into their systems, I doubt they will be taken seriously as a source for evaluating researchers for things like grants promotion and tenure
0: hmm. well you know as you alluded to earlier um, web usage data are a big potential resource for analysis and one big thread uh, in this kind of research it seems to me has been built around the meaning and importance of usage data i've dealt with these data for quite a while in in other contexts and I must admit I over the years i've accumulated quite a bit of skepticism about about what they mean. Um, a download, for example, doesn't even mean that the article is, is actually read. Do you have any thoughts on that, uh, on the meaning of these data, from, from the perspective of the kind of work you do?
1: Yeah, well, you make a good point. So all of these metrics try to make inferences. So the closest inference we have from a download is, is reading. Um, but in many cases, it's not always... A download doesn't necessarily mean that any reading was done. The concept of reading is also pretty flexible. Mm. So a read could be someone skimming an abstract or viewing a figure. It could be someone downloading the PDF version of an article and storing it for later reference. It could be someone or a piece of software downloading bulk numbers of articles for later textual mining, mm-hmm. archival purposes, or just plain malfeasance. <laughs> so so we, we actually have two issues. One is what is the meaning of a download, and, and part of that is based on the inference of... Of what actually happened to create that download with downloads, all you know is that there 's been a request from another computer to your server for a file, and that 's it. Everything else is just conjecture so you know there are standards like Project Counter that try to weed out things like double clicks and other forms of downloads, but you know they 're constantly running up with technologies such as New pieces of software that automatically download and pre cache articles so that a reader doesn't have to wait a few seconds for mm-hmm. a new paper to be viewed. So, from one end, we may be greatly overcounting downloads and thus overestimating true readership. However, on the other end, there are so many different places to get access to an article. We assume often that the reader is going directly to the publisher, but readers have many different conduits to access mm-hmm. articles from from the author him or herself, peers, uh, sharing networks like Mendeley, or large repositories like PubMed Central. So, if you're not capturing those downloads, we may be greatly underestimating um, the true number of downloads, and thus the true number. Or the true amount of readership that's going on in my mind, Stuart, the meaning of a download is losing its value because it needs to be contextualized so precisely I think the idea of creating the article download factor was an interesting idea Um, ten years ago when the conduits of access were more neatly defined but to me it really makes little sense today in this multi-access world if the download factor does come into production I fear that it may give an unfounded authority and precision to something that is very messy and just getting messier.
0: Well, that's interesting, because it does seem like one theme of some of this research is, in fact, how well some of these near-term parameters and article usage being a, a prime example, but even also a paper's performance on something like Faculty of a Thousand, actually predict its longer-term performance in citations. There's, there's this kind of sense that citations are, are still, in some sense, the gold standard of, of long-term impact. What's the state of the art in, in that work?
1: So there have been a lot of studies looking at the predictive power of a lot of these metrics. Early on, there was was a lot of work in um, trying to understand whether early readership data or, I'm sorry, I should say early download data predicts later citations. And they do in some respect. There's, There's a correlation between them, but the correlation is relatively weak and doesn't have too much predictive power. There are other bits of research that's going on, like the relationship of tweets uh, Facebook likes, but you know they're they're pretty fem- ephemeral. These type of metrics, and mm-hmm. they're really open to gaming. For instance, you can go and purchase thousands of tweets and thousands of Facebook likes on the web for just a few dollars. Mm-hmm. Unfortunately, most researchers don't leave comments on other people's papers, and few of them spend their time blogging. So now we come to sort of a very different model that you mentioned, the Faculty of a Thousand model, and and I say it's interesting and different is that it's based on having a group of experts rank the literature rather than leaving it up to the masses, such as tweets and Facebook likes. Um, However, recent research around, um, you know, looking at Faculty of a Thousand really suggests that Faculty of a Thousand members do a worse job in predicting future citations. Hmm. They also do a worse job in identifying those articles that go on to to become highly cited than simply relying on the impact factor of the journal. I think part of the problem with the faculty of 1,000 is that its members rate so little of the literature, less than 2% of the published literature is is ranked by Mm. them or rated by them. And like many systems that are based on volunteer labor, only a small percentage of the faculty of 1,000 are active reviewers and are prone, just like every other academic, to personal biases. In the end, we're left with the general finding that If you want to find important papers, you will find them published in important journals. And personally, I don't find this to be a very surprising finding.
0: You are obviously uh, somebody who thinks a lot about statistical rigor, and uh, many a piece of promising science uh, well outside of the field of uh, bibliometrics has run aground on statistical errors. Uh, What are some of the big statistical no-nos we should be on the lookout for when we are confronted with, uh, with a study like this?
1: Well, I have two lists. One are the data treatment no-nos and also statistical interpretation no-nos. So in my data treatment no-no list, I would include ignoring just basic assumptions of statistical tests like independence or normality of the data, selecting an appropriate test, inappropriate test for the data, or building an inappropriate model, statistical model. Um, I would also include how to treat zeros and missing data. So a zero is a really important number in bibliometrics, but it can be so confusing to researchers. Mm. Sometimes a, a zero is a non-event, like a paper that hasn't been cited or received a faculty of 1,000 review. A zero can also mean that an event may have happened, like a blog post to that paper, but that event just wasn't recorded because either re- the recording software didn't index that blog or because the author of the blog didn't use the proper mm-hmm. linking syntax. So, it's convenient to drop all zeros from a data set if they're included in the data set in the first place and to continue with the analysis, but the results may be misleading. For example, you know, finding a correlation between faculty of 1,000 reviews and citations just means that there is a correlation for the less than 2% of the papers that received a review in the first place. The other big treatment data treatment no-no is when a researcher will note that they've dropped several extreme data points from their analysis. Mm with little justification other than that we're outliers. In information science, it's not surprising to find a few star papers that, are, that greatly outperform the rest, such as a paper that receives thousands of, of citations or hundreds of thousands of downloads. Mm-hmm. And this is to be expected. Yet some f- researchers find these data points inconvenient because they weaken a statistical relationship that they were hoping to find in the rest of the data. To me, the only grounds for removing an outlier is if you can prove that... It was the result of a faulty observation and nothing else.
0: So, uh, so that covers the like, some of the data. Uh... Right.
1: So now on the right now on the uh, statistical interpretation, I have two major no nos. The first is confusing statistical significance with practical significance. So mm. researchers are often overexcited to reject a null hypothesis and report a statistically significant relationship um, from their data set. But given the size of data data sets and bibliometrics and the ease of collecting them, as I mentioned earlier, it's not that hard to discover statistically significant relationships Mm among your variables. But often these relationships are very weak or they don't make sense or they don't have much practical significance. So, for example, in the peer publisher study of institutional archiving on article downloads, The authors of the study claimed that there was a significant difference between the treatment group and the control group. However, when you looked at their data tables, they only this difference only amounted to less than one tenth of one download over a period of three months. (laughs) And in my mind, that's not a difference that most publishers should worry about. The second interpretation problem is confusing correlation with causation and also discerning the direction of causality. And you see this a lot in bibliometric studies. For instance, you know, does open access to scientific articles lead to more citations, or do more highly cited articles tend to be made freely available? Does access to a paper's data set lead to more citations, or do more highly cited papers tend to deposit their data? When you're working with behavioral data and you find an interesting relationship, you really need to do your best to try to weed out all other possible explanations before you rush to publish your findings often a sign that you've discovered a spurious relationship, you know, a relationship in which two events are correlated with each other, but really have no causal link between them, is when you can make these relationships go away by controlling for other possible causes. Mm -hmm. Um, Of course, the best way to identify causal relationships and to know the direction of causation is through a properly designed experiment. But These studies tend to take a lot of planning and time to run, which is why you don't find them often in bibliometrics research, Hmm. unfortunately.
0: Okay, well, we're now at a point where the web is around 20 years old. Uh, We've had a chance to see a lot of work that builds on traditional bibliometrics with a sort of a dimension of, you know, tied to web usage or web metrics. What, in your view, have been some of the high points of that work? Well, let me focus
1: on what I believe is the highest point. Well, first, you know, predating the web we've had this concept of a network of papers. The concept of this network of scientific papers goes back about 50 years to a researcher named Derek DeSola Price who linked these papers together by references to other papers. So while publishers were able to transition to web publishing from the mid-90s, it really took another 10 years to create the standards and protocols to identify and link these papers together. So to me, the DOI or the Digital Object Identifier has been the great achievement of scholarly
0: publishing. And where do you think all of this is headed? Uh, what do you see as the most interesting problems to be uh, explored in, 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 the, in the near term here?
1: Well, a lot of people are working on metrics and standards for evaluation, and this is understood because whenever you have limited amounts of, of resources and money, a lot of people spend a lot of their time fighting over it. So. Where metrics meets evaluation is becoming a very ugly place, and honestly, I I want to stay away from it. <laughs> but th- Asked me to identify a really interesting problem that just has not been focused on. I'm really interested in the submission decisions of authors, where they submit their manuscripts, what happens when their manuscript is rejected. There is so little work in this area, largely because these decisions are kept private and hmm. thus are not recorded um, and shared on a large scale. But we can learn so much about the relationship of journals through these pathways, authors take through the peer review system. If, if you could construct a journal network based on the trajectory of rejected manuscripts, just think about what you could learn from such a network. You know, first you could understand path lengths. We hear so much that the manuscript um, that manuscripts cascade through journals over and over in a long, expensive mm-hmm. process of, of review and rejection. But is that really correct? And to me, Stuart. It it is utterly amazing that we don't know the answer to the simple question, how many times does a paper go through the peer review process? Hmm. And yet unjustified claims have been made to guide national policy or sell new peer review services. So from doing research on the submission and rejection pathways, you can tackle some really important problems in science publishing, such as how do you reduce path lengths such that authors tend to submit their paper to an appropriate journal, it's likely to publish their paper. And what kind of incentives and disincentives can we set up to make the matching of these manuscripts with editors more efficient? You can ask questions like, how do within-publisher cascades? This is the referring of a a rejected manuscript from one journal that the publisher owns to another. Mm -hmm. Change that network, and do they put single-journal publishers at real risk? Other questions like are large multidisciplinary open access journals like PLOS One competing with other journals or attracting papers that would have not found a home? Hmm. And for those that that are interested in impact, does the structure of that journal system as measured by the pathway of manuscripts provide the same information as the journal impact factor? And if it does, we would have the first external validation of the impact factor. This to me seems so important it almost makes me want to go back to graduate school. Well, <laughs> almost.
0: Almost, yes. Right. <laughs> Phil Davis, thanks very much.
1: Thank you for having me.
0: And thank you for dropping in to the Scholarly Kitchen podcast for July 10th, 2013. Be sure to visit scholarlykitchen.sspnet.org, where every day, the kitchen's team of pundit chefs serves up a fresh helping of what's hot and cooking in the scholarly publishing world. You can also comment on this podcast episode on its blog page, and we'd love to hear from you. Thanks to the Society for Scholarly Publishing for its support of this project, and for hosting our audio files, and to the American Association for the Advancement of Science for Use of its Studio and Production Facilities. This is Stuart Wills from Science Magazine. Until next time, on behalf of SSP and all of the chefs in the scholarly kitchen, bon appetit!